Today we are joined by a leading legal name in the Australian listed property market who transitioned to head the risk function of a leading institution less than one year before the pandemic struck. If you're ready for a masterclass in career transition and crisis management, listen on. This is episode 13 of the Field Trip Podcast. Let's go. Jackie O'Day is the Chief Risk Officer of GPT Group, one of Australia's largest diversified property groups with $24.5 billion of retail office and logistics property under management. Jackie transitioned from Deputy General Counsel to CRO in March 2019, giving her about 10 months to prepare for arguably the biggest risk challenge of a generation. We hear how Jackie skilled up quickly, gathered support from within and outside the organisation, and has helped this major landlord navigate the challenge that is the pandemic. Key observations for me from this discussion are how well Jackie managed to transition to a new discipline at a senior level, how well GPT has supported her in doing so, and how she has used her newness to the role as an advantage. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jackie O'Day, you are the Chief Risk Officer at the GPT Group. Um, Welcome to the Field Trip Podcast. Thanks very much, Alistair. Pleased to be here. Great. Where does this podcast find you today? That's a very corporate-looking backdrop that I that I can see. It is. It is. So I am on level 52 of the MLC Centre as we speak, and that's where GPT's Sydney head office is. We have offices in Melbourne, in Brisbane, in Sydney, and we also have a shopping centre up in the Northern Territory. So we're across the country, but most of our people are based here in the MLC. And what's the... Um, uh, like to what extent are people back in the office? We're, I don't want to get too much in discussion about sort of general pandemic-related market issues, but as you're in the office, um, you know how many of your co-workers are back? What's the city in Sydney feel like at the moment? Is it getting its mm. vibe back? It is slowly, though. I think Christmas is helping it along in that there are a lot more people coming into the city now and and moving about at lunchtime, shopping, what have you. But it's a it's a very slow process. At the moment, in terms of GPT, our people have been back in the office since the 9th of June, mm-hmm. in large part. We have came back initially on a team-based basis, um, and we've now scrapped the teams because uh, things are feeling reasonably more certain here, mm-hmm. as you know, and that a low level of community transmission has made us all feel a bit more comfortable being in here. We have a limited number of desks, so where previously we had about 270 desks available for people, we've got about 170 at the moment. And on average, we've got about between 100 and 140 people who make it into the office um, most days, although it's very obvious to us now that Mondays and Fridays uh, are days when people prefer to work from home. (laughs) So we have huge (laughs) demand for desks. Yes, huge demand for desks on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, not so much on Monday and Friday. Right. So I've got you on a quiet day today then. Relatively, yes. This being a Monday. Um, the uh, other than just having a chat um, with somebody who's in a key role and a key um, um, market player being GPT, you've made a very interestingly timed transition yes. from a senior legal role into the the, um, the chief risk officer role at GPT Group, starting almost immediately prior to the pandemic. Um, I really want to unpack that today. That's that's going to be the focus of discussion in, in a lot of respects. But just 
you know, <laughs> in a short answer, how has that experience been for you? <laughs> it's been a big year. It, it's actually been um, a year of enormous growth, which was always going to be anyway, because the role uh, change was significant. So I went from being GPT's Deputy General Counsel to being our Chief Risk Officer. Uh, and in some uh, senses, I guess that was a risk that GPT <laughs> took. Uh, and I'm very pleased they did. But there was always going to be a big learning curve for me because it's very different to the role I had previously, albeit I had been with the company for a long time. So I knew and understood the organization before I changed roles, which helped a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I had done various different, um, more commercial things whilst I had been in the legal team. So I'd been company secretary for our wholesale funds business. I had uh, sat as a director on some of our subsidiary boards. So I covered a fair bit of ground and I thought that I was, uh, I thought I knew lots, but I didn't know anything. <laughs> So it's um, it's been huge. And yeah, I, I think uh, I, I don't uh, regret it at all. I have actually loved it, oddly enough, it, in the toughest times. It's been um, it's been a bit of a thrill in a, in a funny kind of a way to be part of it all, because there really was a crisis and we really did have to respond um, on many different levels. And it was very challenging. Uh, but at the same time, huge opportunity for, for growth and learning and I've actually had an insight into the workings of GPT and working with my my senior colleagues on the leadership team in a way that I it would have taken me years I think otherwise to to get this level of understanding so it's accelerated well, my learning enormously. Yes well that's the, the, the key word of the pandemic it is. isn't it but, it is. look, but I mean the fact that you're speaking so positively about it and I, I can see you speaking about it with a smile must mean that you've you've risen to the occasion um, because oh, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's um, you know it, uh, a fantastic time to do it but but clearly you're you're really resonating with that role well um, tell us about what the risk function looks like at GPT in terms of what are you responsible for um, and perhaps what, what does your immediate team look like and how do you then channel into different parts of the business? So I've got five direct reports and uh, my role is a little bit broader, I think, than some of the other CRO roles around town from what I can gather. Um, so I look after risk and audit, which should come as no surprise. I also oversee GPT's insurances, which I um, understand is a fairly common part of a risk role. I have health and safety reporting into me. I also look after sustainability and procurement. And it's those two extras, I think, which are, make me a little bit different at, at mm -hmm. GPT, the structure here to, to some other organisations. Um, sustainability in particular has been challenging and interesting for me. And as everyone would know, ESG is, is really... Um, having its time in the sun at the moment. Uh, everybody wants to know about ESG and what GPT is doing in that space. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of that is dealt with in my team or by my team. Governance, of course, has an overlap with legal. And so my background in legal and, and in governance generally, having been OSEC, as I mentioned, has been incredibly useful from that perspective. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a broad remit. So uh, five direct reports and each of them have people who report into them and what is if you're as you look around town whether it be within real estate or more broadly what is the car what is the typical career path into that CRO yeah. um, role it's interesting because when I first um, 
transitioned into this role, I spoke with Deloitte and they have a, um, a sort of executive training program that they run for people coming into any of the C-suite roles. And so they had some good insight into what people's backgrounds are when they take on the CRO role and what training might be required. And I contacted them because I was very keen to develop my skills in this area. And one of the things I learned that there, there really is not the traditional um, career path to CRO. So there's, there's not one definable path to getting here. And increasingly, people are coming from a legal background. Um, that, that didn't happen very often, say, 10 years ago. But over that period of time, more and more CROs have some kind of legal background. A lot come from consulting firms. So a lot of them have come through the EY and Deloitte PwCs mm -hmm. of this world. Um, and what and with their genesis in finance? I mean, with my sort of narrow perspective, I've seen people come through a finance function ultimately to find their, their way into risk roles. Yes, finance sometimes. Um, just thinking of my predecessor who she was at Macquarie Bank in a risk role before she joined GPT and has now moved on to enterprise risk management at CBA. Um, some of them have come from that kind of banking sort of background um, and have had degrees in economics, accounting, finance. Um, but yeah, law is increasingly another another pathway into it. But there is no one well-trodden path to it risk management. I mean, you've just spoken about all the different areas of responsibility. There's no one core no. discipline that naturally covers all of them. No, there isn't. And risk itself as a discipline is, um, well, it's been around forever and every every organisation has always been conscious of its risk, but the way it is... Not like it has this year, No, I'm that's sure. right. <laughs> <laughs> the way that it's sort of been formalised, I think, in recent years and is now managed much more closely. There are tools out in the marketplace at IT that uh, is set up to assist people with risk and compliance management. Um, so it's it's got a structure now that perhaps it, it didn't have in the past. And so which of those areas have you found the most challenging to grapple with or um, where you've had to put the most work in to get up to speed? Audit, probably, mm -hmm. uh, because audit is some some an area like legal, I guess, mm -hmm. where people come with very clear backgrounds, actually, and this notion of the role of internal audit uh, and how that fits with your external auditors and what you're there to do, the importance of uh, maintaining independence as an, an internal auditor mm -hmm. and how you actually go about doing that um, and keeping those lines of responsibility really, really clear understanding what used to be called the three lines of defence model. It's now just the three lines model, although we've added of accountability here at GPT. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but understanding how that works and uh, how you go about undertaking different types of audits. So audit was an area where there really is a, a body of knowledge, a well-established body of knowledge that I needed to come to grips with. Uh, mm. And I thought that I, I thought that I understood uh, how audit worked, but I realised once I took on this role that mm. I really, I, at a very high level, sure, you know, most of us have a concept of, of what it might, you know, we can guess what might be involved in an internal audit and how it goes about, but uh, to actually pull together a really meaningful 
audit report to actually undertake a really meaningful audit that adds value to the organisation and isn't just stepping through the motions and to report the information in a way that is easily understood with useful recommendations. There's a real skill to that and we've got mm, a great team here at GPT and they've been very patient with me and helped me um, develop you know, my skills in that area and learn. And that's that's another thing that I think I've grappled with is managing people who know more than you, <laughs> a lot more in some cases, about the different areas that I now oversee. Well, it's a healthy environment to be in, isn't it? Uh, it is. Surrounded by people that know more than you. That's it always is. been my view um, of the world. So how has, you know, you've had a, you spoke about the challenge of um, the internal audit function. How has your time at GPT helped and hindered you in that respect? Because I suppose you would know a lot of people um, so you'd ha- and you have a good understanding of the business, but you're also there to ask the hard questions. Yep. I-, I imagine that is one of the, um, the ongoing challenges of that internal risk function to, to get access and openness and, um, and a candid response from people that you're talking to, yes. but also being able to um, remain impartial. How have you walked that line? Well, actually, that's where the coming from the legal background, that's actually been very helpful to me because there were many occasions in my previous role as Deputy General Counsel where I had to sort of take a hard line. Crack the whip. Crack the whip and yep. tell people, you know, this is you, you, you can't do this and these are the reasons you can't do it, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I was comfortable and remain comfortable doing that in here. I think also uh, my elevation, here I use that word, to GPT's leadership team um, has has hit, it has assisted me in that, to tell the truth. It's, uh, it's been interesting because uh, having, I guess, that credential behind me when I'm asking for information or when I'm saying that uh, something needs to change, then generally it's uh, I get a pretty good response actually now. So it's, um yeah, it's good, but it is tough. I have worked with a lot of my colleagues for many, many years and I know them well, very well. Um, so I can also guess where they're hiding. <laughs> I know where all the bodies are buried. So. You just need to tilt your head in a certain uh, way. Yeah, really, really? Do you really out. mean that? That's right. So it's, um, no, it's, look, it's, it's both a, it's on occasion, but um, no, it seems to be well. I think the professional in your approach is always very helpful. It's maintained a degree of professionalism, I like to think, in, in my work in here, and that's been been very useful it's a um that, that's quite it's a really interesting thing and there are a few comments you made in there have me think about um the like you're talking about the the difference in perception of you or the way people interact with you when you move um from a very senior role into a c-suite role which was interesting um as we were discussing just before we pressed record before i was wanting to get an understanding, albeit a brief understanding, about what the governance structure or the corporate structure at GPT Group looked like um, from from the perspective of exactly what you're talking about there. So, you know, basically what in broad brush does the structure look like? And then how does the management team interact with those decision-making bodies? Um, and, and then interestingly, I, I wanted to dig into how that's differed from the role you're in to, to what you were just, um, or to, to what you're in now. So how what, what does governance look like at, at GPT? Mm-hmm. 
Well, obviously, it all begins with the board. So if we take it from the top, um, so we have a, the way GPT is structured is that we have a headstock, so that the listed entity, GPT entity, but then we also have um, a wholesale funds business. So we've got two wholesale funds, uh, which GPT has a stake in, around about 25% in, in each of our GPT wholesale shopping centre fund and our GPT wholesale office fund. Those two funds have a responsible entity, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of our headstock of, of GPT. Um, and so there is a board that sits uh, over those two funds and is the board of the responsible entity. So we've got effectively two boards uh, that I interact with regularly. Um, and one is the GPT headstock board and the other is the GPT funds management board. Um, and so GPT, it, we, we own, uh, we develop, um, and we manage property and we also have the funds management business. That's our structure. So within our main board, we also have a number of board committees. And there are two in particular that I interact with now, and that is the sustainability and risk committee, and then the audit committee. So I report, all members of my team report directly into both of those committees. And I have a lot of uh, liaising with the chair of each of those committees. And in fact, as far as the audit committee is concerned, I have a dotted line report through to the chair of our audit committee. So I mm -hmm. report also to our chief um, operating officer and also to our audit committee chair. And then uh, one step down from the board structure and the board committee structure sits our LT, so our leadership team. And at the moment, we've got eight members on our leadership team, we'll soon to have a ninth. We're, we're um, filling a role of the head of people and performance and, um, and a new person will join us in February in that role. But at the moment, there are eight of us and uh, each of us are responsible for obviously different areas of business. So we've got our COO, our CEO, um, myself, our CFO, and then we've got the head of our retail business who sits on our leadership team the head of our office and logistics business and the head of our funds management business. So it reflects very clearly the, the business units within GPT. And then probably then the next layer down is our investment committee, which I also sit on. So every investment decision that we make at GPT with a value of over $5 million is approved by our investment committee. And uh, so, so everything we do and that investment committee has a due diligence committee, which I chair. And the role of the due diligence committee is once the IC has actually approved an investment, so we'll go ahead with it, um, then the due diligence committee oversees all of the DD that's done in relation to that acquisition, divestment, development, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then only once all the members of the DDC have signed off, do we actually go ahead with that. So that's, and all of that happens in accordance with limits of authority and all sorts of other structures that, that sit in place. But those would be probably our, our key governance structures. So the, the board, the board committees, the leadership team, the investment committee, and then the due diligence committee that goes with that. And how has your, um, so, so you're sitting in, um, in the leadership team and you're, you said you're on the investment committee as well. So how do you find being part of the discussions 
on, on investments, which I imagine is not something you had exposure to in no. the world. No, I didn't have a lot of exposure to it, albeit I had uh, sat on the board of a actually a government, totally unrelated entity to GPT, a board of a government entity for the last five years, uh, which looked after caravan parks. Um, so it was a Crown, Crown Holiday Parks Trust. And uh, we oversaw 47 different camping and uh, caravan parks across New South Wales. And important function yeah well actually it was amazing and i loved it really loved it and mm. tell you some of that crown land is some of the most magnificent land in new south wales you know just uh, beachfront land that no one can touch because it's crown land so often yeah. in the very best locations and um, so it was great fun going to visit them all but um <laughs> that gave me fantastic insight that that experience was incredibly useful in i think actually helping me have the the confidence to take on this role mm -hmm. and develop my financial skills and particularly my um, investment analysis skills. Prior to that, I had also, as I mentioned earlier, sat as a director on some of GPT's subsidiary boards. So one in particular was Voyages when we owned the Voyages portfolio of hotels and mm -hmm. tourism assets and a, a lot of islands actually up your way in uh, Queensland. So that was a great experience as well because that taught me a lot about you know, basic balance sheet, profit and loss uh, analysis. And, of course, I had sat on every available occasion. I had attended courses and, and, and um, tried to further my education in that area. And I did actually major in finance with an e-commerce degree at uni. Mm. That was about 6,000 years ago now, so it probably <laughs> counts for absolutely nothing. But <laughs> I, did have, I did have some level of familiarity, not very much. Yep. So... Uh, it's been, as I said, massive learning curve. I have loved being part of the investment committee, really enjoy it. I have had a mentor, so uh, somebody who was the head of our capital transactions business unit here at GPT who left not long before I became CRO. And he has been a wonderful sounding board for me and I've been able to ask him a lot of very stupid questions and he has been endlessly patient. So I have built up my skills, but as you say, it, it wasn't an area that was, you know, something that I had worked regularly in for a long period of time before I took on this role. Mm. No, I imagine that would have been, um, if I can just imagine putting myself in your shoes, that would have been the most exciting yet challenging yes. aspect of the role. Yes. I think, you know, you're really having um, input on the core business and core business decisions. And, and I think I a lot of well, most in-house lawyers would probably say that they feel like they really get to sit in yeah. in a chair and feel like that. So that's that's excellent. Um, just shifting track slightly, when comparing your prior role as Deputy General Counsel and your role now as Chief Risk Officer, what does your day look like in comparison? What are the nature of the tasks? Not specifically what tasks are they, mm. but what, what does your day look like? Is it more desk bound? Is it more meeting bound? Is it is it a different type of thinking and engagement that you do? How, mm. how do they differ? A lot more meetings. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm rarely at my desk, and actually for a time that worried me a, a lot. And I was thinking, well, am I actually really contributing here? Am I doing? Uh, you know, it felt like I wasn't sitting down and, and staring at a contract for hours and really mm. feeling like I was doing a piece of work because I yes. was drafting something or yep. I was producing something. Uh, and so that that for me was a real shift. Mm, and I, I had to get used to the notion that 
um, I was adding value but in a different way. So I'm coming to a meeting and I had to come to that meeting prepared. I have to come to that meeting ready to contribute and ready to make decisions actually to really make calls on the hop. And that's what I find is now expected of me. And when I'm attending meetings, people want my input and they want uh, to, to be assisted in, you know, given a direction with whatever it is we're there to talk about. Um, and so that's... Okay, how do you find that responsibility? Uh, again, I'm just projecting my own uh, yeah. insecurities here, but I think as a lawyer, it's there's, there's always that. I think that the legal mindset is one of constantly looking for things that are wrong. That's right. Um, I think that's inherent in the thought process. And so part and parcel of that, certainly for me, is always going back and revisiting things and being worried about tripping over things. You're now in a role where you're expected to consistently make significant decisions Mm. on the fly. Mm. Um, Mm. Did you suffer from (laughs) from that that thing before? And and how, how have you been able to manage that in doing what you're doing now? I think one of the things that I kept wanting to do initially was to to take it away and just do a little more research and understand a little bit more before yeah. I could then, you know, feel comfortable saying, yes, okay, we can go ahead with that. And I have had to overcome that mm-hmm. um, because you don't have the time or the luxury of being able to do that all the time. And I have perfectionist tendencies, as I've been told all my career. Um, so that 80-20 <laughs> rule I really had you to know. work on. <laughs> I would like to know everything about everything before yeah. I make a decision about it. And, uh, and that's not helpful, actually. And so I have had to learn to, to move quickly and um, to trust myself. And actually, the thing that has helped me the most is just getting on and doing it and finding that the world hasn't actually fallen apart and that mm-hmm. most of the time I am my, my judgment is good and I have learned to trust my experience um, a lot more than I was doing in legal. You know, in legal, you, you you really do need to. You've got to back, you've got to check the act, you've got to make sure that you've got the, the right year, the right date, the right word, uh, and you do actually have to be bang on correct most of the time. Um, mm. Although there's obviously shades of grey in legal too and lots of scope for judgment there as well. But um, in this role, it's I've moved into a zone now and perhaps it's the seniority as well where most things rely on judgment. There are a, a judgment backed by good information, judgment backed by knowledge and experience, um, and that's what gives you that good judgment, I guess, at the end of the day. Yep. But, yeah, you just have to kind of trust yourself every now and then and go, yeah, just let's let's go. And I made a call this morning, actually, which is still scaring me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we've, we've done all the... This is a free therapy session. That's it, yeah. exactly. I can tell you. But, uh, look, it, it's... Um, and it ha- had to do with IT, and IT is not an area. And in fact, from a risk perspective, cyber, um, the risk of, of ransom uh, at the moment is is really uh, very, very high. Mm. And it's something we're constantly conscious of. And it is an area where I have probably have had to do more work in that area to be able to understand the risk. Um, I needed to understand some of the language. I needed to understand a bit more about the technology than mm. I did. And, and that was actually... Actually, when you asked before about the biggest learning curve, audit was certainly a big learning curve. But having to understand a lot of IT, it has also been a challenge for me. Yeah, and there's there's so much, you know, having had to walk a similar path in quite a different context, mm. um, there's so much there that is unknown and is not tangible. It's quite a different... Yes. It's conceptually very different to other things that you need to learn. Mm. Um, so I, I hear you on that. Um 
the um, oh, so the, I, I was interested just as you were you were telling me all of that whether you think if you tomorrow went back and sat in your old chair whether you'd do things markedly or in in a different way having had the experience of of the past nine months i think the commercial insight that i have now would help me and to i would probably perform my role slightly differently certainly with a much greater understanding of the end goal uh, perhaps than i did originally i you know it's funny you think you know things and you think you're commercial, uh, but I realise now that I probably wasn't as commercial as I believed I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that, uh, yeah, I've got a slightly different perspective on the role of lawyers um, and their contribution to these kinds of decisions. And I see now that it's just one part of the puzzle it shouldn't be the driver. There are some circumstances where, yes, it should be when you're dealing with things that are, you know, where you compliance issues, whatever, continuous disclosure, all that sort of stuff where it is very important uh, that, that legal can drive. But um, when it comes to whether or not you're going to acquire an asset, sell one, um, it, is, it is one small part of the puzzle and there are a lot of other things at stake and they all need to be weighed up. And there's no perfect answer a lot of the time. So you you have to be able to think ahead and think about the broader impacts of every decision it is that you're making. So yeah, I probably would I probably would perform it differently. And I imagine there's an interesting opportunity then for there to be a bit of a feedback loop coming from you yes. back into the legal function to sort of share the things you've learned. Yes, yes. Some lawyers are more open to learning those things than others though. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting. I, I think um, think a lot of lawyers who do make the move into um, away from private practice and, and into a firm like GPT, a company like GPT, uh, they're already of a mindset where their minds, you know, they, they want that exposure. They want to be uh, viewed as commercial uh, because mm-hmm. that's the ultimate uh, that's the ultimate goal for any. It's the ultimate compliment, you know, if you're an in-house yes. lawyer that you're a commercial <laughs> in-house lawyer on on top yes. of being a really good lawyer, you're commercial. That's probably the highest praise they can give you in here. <laughs> so yes, well, I think that's true. Let's, if, if we can, just go back to the um, sort of early in your in your tenure when the pandemic was. Um, was starting to become a thing and not, and not wanting to get into the specifics um, of what um, of what GPT did, but perhaps talking in, in more general terms um, to, to the extent you're feeling comfortable to do that. The, when it started to become a thing, what was that environment like and how did things come together and what kind of things were immediately apparent as being number one priorities in dealing with um, the impact? Mm, health and safety. Health and safety was absolutely and remains absolutely our number one priority. So mm-hmm. uh, the health and safety of our staff, first and foremost, and then, you know, obviously we deal with a lot of contractors. We've got tenants, we've got customers coming into retail shopping centres across Australia. Health and safety has been the key driver behind every decision we've made in how we've responded to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. The, and the, can I just ask, how, how did you mobilise in that area, being new to the role and and not having that skill set specifically or that I'm sure you've had, had 
things to do with with that area, but you haven't been a practitioner in that no. area before. How did you and the team mobilise with expertise to help you sort of meet those challenges? It's interesting. GPT has a, an external advisor who we use to advise in relation to crisis management in particular. And we had a, we, you know, so I pulled out our crisis management plan and our asset incident response guides, and I went straight to all the, the policy documents. Is it right? What do yeah. we have here? What what does it say? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this was in January. We began yeah. this exercise. Actually, in December. It was in December this time last year. Amazing. And um, we. And had, when did you start? Just. Uh, so I started in March uh, in twenty. Um, I could get this right. Twenty nineteen. So what are we now coming into March? That's right. March 2019 was when I began in the role and December yep. was when really so had, it started. Your feet were comfortably under, under I'd the had, desk. I'd had it? some exposure and I knew, in fact, one of the things that I had been working on was our business continuity plan. So I was familiar with um, that set of documents, that set of mm-hmm. policies. Uh, and we had an. Ed- it wasn't a blowing the dust off. And no, um, <laughs> no, it wasn't I'm at all. Imagining you know no. this, this big old leather bound. No, not at all. No. no, it was actually one of the first things I did when I came into the role, and I can't remember exactly why I uh, focused on that, but I'm very pleased I did. We mm. had an airborne contaminants plan in place, and uh, what I did was took that, went back to our external consultant, and said, you know, this is maybe not an airborne contaminant. I don't think this is going to cover what we're heading towards here. And of course, at that stage, we didn't know it was a pandemic and then the um, um, World Health Organization didn't call it a pandemic until the beginning of of this year. So they waited some time um, before it was officially classed as a pandemic. But in any event, um, airborne contaminants wasn't going to be sufficient given what we thought we were facing. And we put together a pandemic response guide and we did that in January. Uh, and mm. we had that, we, we formed a committee um, and we met for the first time on the 3rd of February. And I think at that stage, there were six cases in Australia. Um, so it was pretty early days in the, in the mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, and we, we basically started to pull together a roadmap as to how we were going to respond uh, if this got really bad. Mm. And by that stage, February 2020, I was already um, sending emails to all of our staff in relation to travel. So people who had had their own personal holidays overseas during this last year's Christmas break um, and where they'd been and we were formulating some guidance around whether they could come back into the office or not, dependent on where they had holidayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were also asking people to advise us as to where they were heading off to. At that stage, DFAT had certain um, travel advisories out for different countries. Oh, I've just lost the lights in here. That comes of being part of the sustainability team. I'll flick them on. <laughs> it's all very, all very environmentally friendly. And if you sit still for too long, the lights go out. Um, but uh, yeah, so we were already. Uh, the, the irony of that being your ultimate responsibility is lost on me. I must say. <laughs> That's right. So well, it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, I think we were already uh, recognizing. We we recognized early. We were already managing our staff in relation to travel and attendance in the office. And, Potential risk, and and it just built from there. And to tell you the truth, I mean, there was no handbook for it. Nobody, nobody mm. knew. I had fortunately uh, reached out to all of the other CROs very early on when I took on this role, and I invited them all to lunch actually about three weeks in, and um, and created a little sort of committee, and and so I was able to draw on them and their knowledge, and we got together and we worked. We had uh, maybe once a week at the beginning, once every couple of weeks, we were on the phone as a team. And it was wonderful 
to share that knowledge within the property industry and all of the big players. So, you know, we have Centre Group in Stockland and you know, everybody was there, Dexas, and, and we did it together in large part. And it was actually very liberating to be able to know that there was absolutely no downside. In fact, there was only upside in collaborating. And uh, it was great. I was hesitant to ask that question, actually, because every now and again, when I'm having these sorts of discussions, I ask the extent to which there's collaboration. Some people are open and some people are closed there. But in this case, one, I'm glad you volunteered the information. Two, I'm glad that you've done what you've done um, because it's not the time for being proprietary no. about process, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. No, no. We 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 learned so much uh, as a result of it. And actually, I also joined another group um, called the Risk Leadership Network, a mm. really excellent tool that has been for me. In fact, I, I've learned a huge amount of many thanks to, to people who set that up. And it was only set up probably oh, a few months into my role. So in June 2019, I think they actually launched this thing called the Risk Leadership Network, which connects risk leaders across different types of industries in different countries. Mm. And that was particularly that helpful in mm. a COVID scenario because I was able to talk to people fairly regularly in the UK or in France or in Belgium or wherever they were. And because they had the horrible disadvantage probably of being ahead of us on the COVID curve, uh, they were able to impart a lot of their tips and tricks and how they were, you know, I could learn a lot about what they were doing with their employees and their workplaces, et cetera. So it was very, very useful. It just strikes me that that's a very early start that you made there, which is full credit to you for seeing um, you know, for seeing the trend coming before, I think a, a lot of people did. But the you know, you're talking about you know realization of the issue in December and mobilization in sort of mid to late January. That's um, that's impressive. Well, I think to to be fair, I think that partly I I because I was new in the role, um, I was, and because I. Uh, as you said earlier, with a legal background, you look for the negatives. I'm very good at identifying any possible risks. <laughs> I can tell you all the pitfalls of anything. And the sky so, is falling. indeed, the sky indeed. Is falling. So, <laughs> I was I was um, very uh, acutely aware of my responsibilities and wanting to do a good job. Mm. And and I think because I was new in the role, perhaps that helped me because I was particularly paranoid about getting it right. Mm. And, and working hard on it and uh, and reaching out to others who I could learn from. And so I, yeah, I think that helped me in being proactive in that sense, yeah. That's that's a really interesting story. I'm just trying to, to digest all that. I, I want to talk about um, what the situation looks like now. Certainly in Queensland, people, it almost feels to a certain extent like it never happened, not not, all, not altogether, but just in general interactions with people. I think the general anxiety day to day of being in a public place with um, with, with people seems to have resided um, uh, a little bit, which is which is positive. Uh, I get the sense from what you're saying that, that the feeling is probably quite similar in New South Wales as well. So, what does um, what is the outlook now? Like, what what are you focusing on now? What are the the main priorities? You know, recognizing that that health and safety remains number one. Is there, you know, is there a break in the waves, as it were, for you to start making some headway in in other areas and push beyond this at all? There is, there is, um, and in fact, 
I am going to turn the lights on. And just give one. I'm I'm going to wheel across here and click on a set of lights. Okay, this is this is live action. <laughs> right. Okay. Back. Um, in terms, now, our video editor is going to be. They can take that. Bit <laughs> out. Won't know what to do with himself. <laughs> I made that really hard for somebody. Anyway, it's probably better that uh, you have vision. My, not, not that I necessarily want anyone to have any vision of me whatsoever. I can't bear the thought of it. However, better the lights than no lights. Um, in terms, oh, of there, there are there are tens of people who are going to see the the YouTube version of this, Jackie. You're... <laughs> Great. Um, um, now, in terms of what we're it. focusing on now, yes, there is a bit of a break in in, in the waves, as you say. Um, at the moment, I think people are feeling relatively comfortable, albeit I am never I am never completely comfortable, um, mm. and it's not gone away. It's very clear that um, the, the virus remains, and there hasn't been a complete eradication of it by any means in Australia. So I think there is still great risk, particularly over this summer period. And I've got one son who's up in Byron Bay at the moment celebrating the end of his HSC. Right. And I, yes. other than the drive to and from Byron Bay from Sydney, which terrifies me, my second biggest worry, or perhaps my first, depends on what day you ask me, is COVID. Um, mm. It's it's around. And so, yes, we still have to be vigilant and we've got a way to go. And even once that vaccine gets rolled out, I think we will still, in fact, have some time before we can rest easy in relation to it. So that will be on our risk radar for quite some time to come. Um, but other risks that we have, so we have a key risk dashboard like most organisations do, and we update that on a very regular basis. In fact, COVID has been a fantastic um, prompt for us to make that a much more active uh, document. So mm -hmm. we, uh, when, when COVID began, we basically redid our key risk dashboard from top to bottom. Uh, and I think we've now ended up with a far more relevant uh, document, which is getting a lot more attention than it, it used to. It used to be reviewed quarterly and, and that was fine and probably adequate. Uh, but now I think the environment has shifted so much and it's so dynamic that I don't think we can afford to have it reviewed as infrequently as that. And throughout mm. the worst of the crisis, we were looking at it as a leadership team on a monthly basis. Um, and we had put it, all of our key risks onto a heat map and we've been moving them around as, as the environment that we're working in has been moving around as well. But, um, but some of those risks that are there for most large property companies, including GPT, things like terrorism, um, things like climate change, they, they remain as uh, you know, very key risks for us and we are very focused on them in the background. Probably not as publicly as we are on COVID, but... Yes. Yeah. And, and how, do, how do you avoid... I, 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 I give you some notes about what I'm going to ask ahead of time and I was trying to think of a, a way to say this that was um, politically correct, but I might in fact say what I didn't say that I was going to say. How do you avoid the copy and paste the last report yeah. <laughs> dynamic of... Um, of risk analysis, and, and I have a similar question to valuations. Actually, mm. you know, when particularly when they're done very frequently, how do you get clear headspace mm. to look objectively at the risks for an organisation when you are coming back to that list on such a regular basis? It, you know, it's amazing how how much it has moved and how much focus that list has had since the beginning of, of COVID, in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, to the point where the, the board, the Sustainability and Risk Committee and the leadership team will debate the use of one one word over another in there. And uh, it, it's it's fantastic and very gratifying 
And the one thing that um, I've had to get used to, and I guess this partly comes from being a lawyer, I want to give them a perfect document. So <laughs> I have had to learn, uh, and I know this, and most of us know this instinctively, that you're not expected to to give all the answers, you know, just because I'm the chief risk officer doesn't mean I'm going to know or understand all of the risks and and identify everything correctly and have the perfect mitigation strategies in place. That's not the case. Um, but my role is is to be aware and to to keep abreast of the changing environment, to to understand what what big risks are out there that other people may not have the time or space to be thinking about, to put those on the table, and then it becomes a discussion. It becomes mm. a discussion about what do those risks really mean for GPT and how should we be responding to them? How critical are they to our business? Uh, and so that that's what we do. And that might mm. mean that the way I have framed the, the particular risk gets changed. And that's a, that's a good thing. Mm. Uh, so there's a well, lot it's, of focus. It's setting the table for the discussion being a more important thing than setting the table perfectly, I suppose. Yes. Um, it's, it's engaging all of these, you know... Um, you know, these great minds with experience and expertise in different areas to focus on a range of different things that you're setting out in a way that can facilitate that discussion without necessarily looking going, Jackie, that's brilliant tick. Yeah. Um, you get, get far more value and leverage, I imagine, out of that uh, you know, decision. You absolutely do. And it, and it mm. is such an interesting environment that we're in at the moment. As I've read on many occasions, we're in this liminal time where where we are in, we are living the change right now. We're in this shift. We're in this little gully in between two different, very different things. And we can't yet see with clarity where we're heading in that regard. Mm. But there is no question that there is going to be a significant shift in the way we work as a society. And so what does that mean for the owner of very large and very valuable office assets in Australia? And how do we have to respond to that? And similarly in retail, there's been this great acceleration of online shopping, which which we knew and that was a trend well before COVID, but um, mm -hmm. that's been brought forward as well. So what does that mean for us? But those things then have flow on risks as well. And and that work, um, you know, shift in how we work is also potentially a, a threat to the culture of an organisation. If, if all Very your much. people are not coming in every day and you're not having that same collaborative interaction that you may once have had, what does that mean for the culture of GPT? Who are you into the future and, and how much does it matter? So there's mm. some really, really fascinating uh, issues that we're thinking about and grappling with. What's your personal view, and you can share it or not, I'll, I'll share mine, but uh, you first. What, what's your personal view on whether a lot of the doomsday talk about the negative impact um, on office and re on, on the office and retail sectors to what extent do you think that's on the mark or perhaps a bit overstated bit of a leading question i think by the way yes. I asked, you can tell what i think you have but i look i from from a retail perspective um i i think online definitely will be accelerated there are a lot of people been introduced to online shopping who maybe have never done that before uh, mm -hmm. and who are finding it very convenient and useful for whatever reason so that that that'll take off and that's we always knew that was going to happen but uh, if if Victoria is anything to go by, so that since ever since uh, we've been able to open all of our retail stores in all of our shopping centres in Victoria over the last week or so, uh, the trade down there has been extraordinary. Mm. Uh, obviously, there's pent up demand as well, but the number of people who have flocked back to retail shopping centres in Victoria, and similarly, uh, say in New South Wales, after the lockdown, we saw the same thing. And New South Wales, we now are able to see that that really hasn't abated. 
uh, mm. since since our shops have been able to reopen. So, yes, I think there's something in retail to the to the online story for sure, and we're going to have to learn how to how to deal with that. And our retailers are themselves adjusting to that and becoming multi-channel, omni-channel retailers. I just make a comment on that. Yeah. I, I think there's, you know, when you look at a lot of the trends and one of the things that I think about is the, you know, perhaps figuratively the flattening of the CBD to a certain extent where there might be more more work, office work pushed out to the suburbs than there has been previously. The large retail centres, the, these major centres, are, are they're community hubs. So I can see that whilst they might transform into a different format or mix mm. uh, I, I think i think that in you know the medium to long term they're, they're going to be stronger on account of that trend i think so too i i mm. I, I can't see how it would be otherwise unless people decide they don't want to actually shop in a supermarket anymore and they'll do all of that online but i don't know i, I can't see that I, I happening think i think they like are people. community centers <laughs> and and i think essentially yeah. that's right we are social beings and and in terms of office um people when we reopened on the 9th of June, we did that earlier than a lot of other large companies in Sydney, uh, and we had a surprising take-up. You know, there were a, a, been a, a good number of people back in our offices and happy to be here since the start, and we have mm. made it completely optional at all times, as, in fact, we're required to do under the public health order here in, in New South Wales. Employers can't require their employees to... to um, work in an office if it's reasonably practical for them to work at home uh, and so that's what we've done but I think that it will change people will probably want to work flexibly more often than they have in the past I think mm -hmm. that that's almost inevitable and uh, now that a lot of people have had <laughs> a taste of it Fridays. exactly Mondays <laughs> and Fridays for example but um, and we're going to have to think as an organization about how we grapple with that too because we can't have all of our people at home on Mondays and Fridays and then everybody in here on on Tuesday Wednesday Thursday because of the limited number of seats available. Mm. And we've always actually operated with fewer desks than employees in our offices because so mm. many of our people do work flexibly and did coming into COVID and are out on site a lot of the time anyway. Um, but yeah, it will, it will definitely impact office going forward. Very hard to say how, but it's certainly not the death of an office. No way. That's my view. <laughs> yeah. No, look, I, I I agree. I think it's going to look different, but I don't think it's um, I think it's as bad as some people uh, are making out. So very interesting times there. I had a whole lot of other questions here, but I'm conscious of time, and I, and I wanted to talk a, a little bit about your career path in a broader sense. And I want to do that because I think the things that you've done, a lot of people would look up to in in the sense of having um, one made the transition that you've made, and as somebody who has spent a reasonable amount of time working in in-house role in a similar organisation to GPT and initially wanting to go and transition into another part of the business then deciding that's not what I wanted to do. And, and knowing a lot of people who go with those aspirations, you've done it and you've done it successfully. So I think I'm keen to hear about your path in a broader sense. And you've also had, as you'd shared with me, um, you know, time where uh, – because of you know responsibilities of of family, you haven't been able to put the foot down to the extent that you might otherwise have, mm. and now you've got the opportunity to do that. So, with that backdrop, I'm just keen to understand perhaps how your perhaps we could start with how have your 
aspirations change? Where did you, what did you think you wanted to do when you started being a lawyer? Um, and, and how has that changed through the different sort of periods of your career to date? I started at Blake Dawson Waldron in, uh, I think it was 1993, 93 as a summer clerk when I was at university. They're now Ashurst, of course. And, um, and if, oh, I know. I know the reference. Yeah. <laughs> you're, in, you're in good company here. And if you'd asked me then, if you had asked me then, I probably very unimaginably would have told you that I wanted to be a partner there because that was the path. Um, and I had gone to uni and I had the law degree and that was what most people did. Um, and I would have been perfectly happy with that, to tell you the truth. But uh, mm-hmm. an opportunity came up for me early on in my career to move to Land Lease and I took that. And that was a bit of a leap of faith, but I... How did that come about? When you say an opportunity came up, you were doing work for them and they said, hey, Jackie, no. how, how about coming over? No, or? I, it was it was quite odd. Anyway, I, I, I got a call uh, from a recruiter when I was at Blake's and I said, no, I said, no, it's ridiculous. I'm not going anywhere. I'm very happy here. And I was very happy there. I was very happy. I enjoyed yeah. my job a lot. That's a good first response. It was, I said, no, <laughs> go away. And, uh, and anyway, bizarrely... Uh, my both my husband and another friend quite independently told me about an ad they had seen in the Fin Review uh, for a in-house legal role at Lendlease and the description of the skill set and you know the area the types of work was exactly what I was interested in and and what I enjoyed doing and they said gosh you know that sounds like you and I thought well that's that's odd and then when the so I now didn't think much more about it but then the recruiter called back again and I thought, well, this maybe this is there's the hand of God, this is fate talking to me, maybe I should go along and find out. So I trotted along to three interviews, um, all of them thinking, what am I doing? This is a total waste of my time. I, you know, I should be back in the office doing other things. And, mm-hmm. and that probably influenced how nonchalant and I, I, I answered the questions in a very relaxed fashion. Anyway, I got offered the job and, and I took it. And it was for me the first time I think that I really stepped outside my comfort zone and I took an opportunity that came along. And if I can offer any advice to anybody who, who listens to this, that is the one thing that I, I think people should do. You know, when, when an opportunity comes, you should just take uh, and And not all opportunities will, will work out brilliantly, um, but you won't know uh, unless you give it a go. And in my case, um, I have been so thrilled each time I have pushed myself and taken a chance and people have taken a chance on me. And I mm-hmm. think... Um, it's improved my... Oh, I think they're linked. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, I, I, it has increased my confidence. So each time you do it, you get a little bit better at doing it. And each mm-hmm. time, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, um, wasn't endowed with huge amounts of self-confidence, believe me. And so I, I didn't think I could do it. But luckily, my husband and other people who supported me throughout said, you know, of course you can. Don't be stupid. Give it a go. What have you got to lose? And so I have each time. And it's been it's been great. And I, you know, similarly a few years ago, took the deputy general counsel role when that came up. But because I, I've got four children um, and my husband has a demanding job, we made a decision a long time ago that that, and I made the decision actually with his support that I was prepared to and wanted to focus on on our family for a period of time. And I very much did that. So I worked. I have worked two days, three days. Four days. I have worked in a job share arrangement for eight years. I've done every form of uh, flexible, um, uh, you know, work known to mankind. I think every arrangement, every day of the week. Um, 
And so, <laughs> uh, no stone left. No, no, I've tried Mondays and Fridays and Thursdays and three days in a row and two days at either end. I've done it all. And people still call you on the days. When oh, you're and on. people always did. But actually, <laughs> that's a very key point that because uh, I, one of my team mentioned to someone the other day that I'm not in the office on Friday and that I don't, I'm not supposed to work on Friday. I don't think it's ever been Friday. I haven't worked, but anyway. Uh, and this fellow nearly dropped dead. And I've worked with him for. 20 years and he said she doesn't mm. want work on a Friday but I've, he said mm. I've had so many meetings with her on a Friday and I think that's very important that I have been very flexible uh, with GPT I have accommodated them and they have accommodated me and it has been a mutually beneficial arrangement and I have demonstrated that I can be trusted and and therefore they have given me that trust in in response so mm. it's it's a two-way street a very much a two-way street and I have never set firm boundaries around when I will or won't work. I have just done what mm -hmm. needs to be done. Um, and I have, on the whole, been happy with that arrangement. But, um, but yeah, I, when the CRO role um, came up, again, I thought, well, I don't know if I'm, you know, is this a good thing to do? But then I thought, well, what the heck, here we go, give it a go. Well, I mean, I, I, as I've shared with you when we've spoken previously, I think that to successfully make that transition is rare. In from from what from what I've seen, so full credit to you for doing that. Full credit to GPT as well, I think, for backing yes. you into that role because I think a lot of organisations take a view on the legal skill set and the legal mindset. Mm. Of course, you've proven yourself over many years there, but I, I think that's a that's a great story, and I and I hope we see I hope we see more of that. Um, two questions, or what one question before the standard last question that I ask: um, What would you say? Um, what would you say to people coming into the profession now? If they're asking for advice, if, if somebody at, at law school or, or someone about to graduate is, um, is asking for advice about the path they should take or the things they should be doing, doing, given how different the profession looks when each of you and I would have, would have started, what, what do you tell people now? I look, I can't. It's interesting because some of my um, sons, so my sons are now 23, 21, uh, 18, and 15. And so I am being asked that question from time to time. <laughs> and are they, are, they, are they studying? Are they aspiring? No, none of them will touch oh, well it with done. a 10 foot well pole. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got electrical engineering, I've got a software engineer. One of them's going to start oh, with that Atlassian soon. So, no, oh, no, excellent. not at all. So, it's a yeah, vastly different set of skills they've got. But uh, they can all debate, I'll tell you what. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but when I talk with them and their friends, I the best I can say is really keep an open mind. I think a law degree gives you an amazing grounding in, for so many. You can you can jump in so many different directions now. My husband, who's actually a politician, was formerly a lawyer. Um, but there there are so many people who I meet in public life, and actually through my husband, uh, who have law degrees and who have ended up in weird and wonderful places doing all sorts of things. Don't close your mind to the, the opportunities that are available to you. Uh, and of course, if you want to be a partner in a law firm, and there are people who want to be partners in law firms, mm -hmm. that's a great thing too. So don't shy yep. away from that either, uh, or a barrister for that matter. But you can take it in so many different directions and just keep your mind open to all of the things that are available. I think that's excellent advice. Last question, Jackie, I ask what people's current obsession is. It's just trying to get an insight into something that you do outside of 
uh, outside of work and family that might surprise people? Do you have anything that fits the bill there? I love to read. So the Netflix show you're binging no, perhaps? No, or, uh... no, I like The Crown, love to read. That wouldn't surprise anyone, I don't think. But I, my obsession, my lifelong obsession is French and all, all things French. And I speak French and I... Mm-hmm. Uh, have a French tutor who comes to the house once a week when I don't cancel her for work reasons. Um, but I, yeah, I, I am absolutely obsessive. I listen to the French news on SBS. I have a, there's a colleague here in the office who um, I cost um, whenever I can because she's French, uh, and we speak French together. That is that is a passion that has never waned. I, I it give, it's like going on a holiday in my head every time I speak French. It's wonderful. So and do you, do you get but, you know, outside of the last 12 months, do you get over to France much to, to, I do. to use that? Luckily for me, my best friend from school married a Frenchman. It was meant to be oh, me, well but, you know, second best thing, it was her. <laughs> <laughs> and so she, uh, she lives over this, there. No, I don't, no, I don't send that to Jonathan. Um, but she, yes, yeah, so she lives in Paris. And well, in fact, she works for Austrade at the moment. She's in London currently. She was all there recently. And they moved over in January, bad timing. Um, but anyway, she is most of her life in Paris and she's got three sons, one of whom I am godmother to. So I always say that I have responsibilities oh, have in France. I, there are things I need to do over there. You'd be so, a bad godmother yeah, I would, be, go I would be derelict would. not to be travelling there frequently. So, yes, it's my that is my obsession. <laughs> That's wonderful. Jackie, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. So Thank you so much, Alistair. It's been a pleasure. That was Jackie O'Day, Chief Risk Officer of GPT Group, and I am Alistair Fitzgerald, CEO of Field. We are the leading solution in the Australian market for lease portfolio due diligence. If you are buying or selling commercial real estate assets, or a tenant looking to better understand and leverage its lease portfolio, or involved in transaction advisory involving large quantities of leases, let us turn your leases into action. Find out more at fieldql.com. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.